This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome to Plato's Cave, a RRR film criticism show and podcast. My name is Lisa Kovacevic. Joining me in the cave tonight are Sally Christie and Stuart Richards. Hi, guys. Hi. Hello there. We were just saying it's our first time alone without Emma or Cerise. I know. And I feel like the parents have gone away and left us the keys. It's a bit scary, okay. isn't it? <laughs> Who knows what will happen. Uh, on tonight's show, someone gets an upgrade, someone gets sick and someone is disobedient. Yes, I get replaced by a robot. Sally comes down with a fever and Stuart misbehaves. We'll also, <laughs> <laughs> we'll also discuss the film's upgrade, disobedience and Sunday's illness. Um, the latest film from Australian writer-director Lee Winnell, who bought us the Saw franchise. Yes, it's Saw 86. No, it's not. But um, <laughs> God, did he really bleed that cash cow, don't you that reckon? Um, no, this is Upgrade. It's a sci-fi set in a not-so-distant future of police drones and dystopic cityscapes. Think Blade Runner or Terminator on a budget. Upgrade follows Grey Logan Marshall Green, a vintage car enthusiast and Luddite resistant to technology. When Grey and his wife are brutally attacked by a gang of cyberpunks, they leave Grey a quadriplegic and his wife dead. A billionaire tech mogul, Eron uh, Harrison Gilbertson, offers Trace a cure, an artificial intelligence implant called STEM that will enhance his body. Gray, Gray accepts the upgrade implantation, which enables him to walk, but also gives him superhuman strength and agility skills he uses to avenge his wife's death. STEM soon becomes a voice in Gray's head, quite literally directing his every move. He has a mind and a voice of his own, recalling Hal from 2001's A Space Odyssey. Or Scarlett Johansson, Samantha character from um, her. Uh, the film develops around the tension between Grey and Stem as Stem comes to have more and more control over Grey's body. Um, this is a low-budget Aussie hybrid sci-fi action horror movie, all dressed up in Americanisms and conventions to maximise its appeal. The cast speak with American accents, cars drive on the right side of the road and the noirish cityscapes and sets are shot and lit in a way that could have been anywhere but it's actually shot here in melbourne um it's only really the flora and fauna that give it away i found what did yeah. you guys think sally did you want to let sally us sally has feelings she about has feelings this. I do have feelings about <laughs> this movie um it's interesting that you said lisa you know i think terminator on a budget mm. The original Terminator film was made on a budget. It was sort of made like a, almost an exploitation, you know, B-film. And it was an exceptional piece of sci-fi, the way that it was just kind of thrown in there. Uh, this, you know, clearly was made on a budget too. I think Blumhouse will give $5 million for a film and that's kind of it, which is why I know this was filmed in Melbourne and not America because it was cheaper. They, would be able, they were able to do what they wanted to with that $5 million, um budget. But I found this movie really bad in mm. every way. Like, all, it, it just wasn't executed well. Um, I could kind of see that he was going for that John Wick kind of thing, that revenge thing, which is fun. It's good. It's fun. But... It didn't work in any sense for me. There were all these, I guess, zingers that the audience didn't laugh once at. Um, the shitty robot noises. Oh, that was just... The, I just... I disliked it. There was nothing redeeming about this for me whatsoever. Was I it, could go on and on. Well, I've got a list of things it, that what, I was it just the, it. Is it just the production values for No, you, no, no, or? not just yeah. the production values. I, I thought the story was completely boring. I've got here in my notes that man versus technology is overdone with, but, you know, I guess that's like saying, gee, killers over, killing people is overdone with mm. in a horror movie. Of course, you know, we're going to have that thing come through in sci-fi, so that's pretty ignorant of me to say that. But um, it just... 
the it was meant to be there was meant to be comedy in here and it wasn't working particularly that scene which is shown in the trailer so I'm not giving away any spoilers where he does kind of get taken over by stem steam yes yeah, stem yeah um and starts hitting the guy in the face with plates and all this kind of thing and it's very reminiscent of Evil Dead and Bruce Campbell's character in Evil Dead which is genuinely funny and very slapstick and it just looked really shit, you know? <laughs> really? See, that was the only, for me, the only redeeming thing about the film was I thought that um, Logan Marshall Green, who plays um, the main character yep. of Grey, I thought that his physicality was really well executed. He, he was able to sort of split his his mind from his body, so to speak, which yeah, is what we're meant to yep. what we're mm. meant to do. Uh, so, so you see on his face this sort of disbelief at, at his body, which is able to now pull off these remarkable sort of ninja moves and um, yeah, quite gory horror um, in, in a way where he's almost apologetic when he's killing people. He's like, "Oh, sorry, I'll just keep you stay down," and then chopping off heads and mm-hmm. what, what have you. Um, I thought that that was quite well executed, and I thought the cinematography was excellent in the, in the way it moved as fast as he did and as jilted um, as as his body was. Um, but otherwise I found, yeah, it's funny, like the production design's interesting because it wasn't bad. But and it, I liked and, it. Yeah, like there was things about it that I, you, I did kind of like and it's kind of actually quite slick. But at the same time I could see that it was budget and mm. I don't know what it was but then I was trying to figure it out and I think that there's a lack of detail there um and particularly like there's this there's a scene in I could just see where they'd spent their money I, yep. let me say that you can see where the money's been spent and one is on like um a, a, a car a driverless car and I'm yes. like but where are all the other cars like there was that was the only one that yeah. existed in this world I saw him try and justify that where oh, he right. was saying that um if it was set in the sort of not too distant future, there would still be some shitty cars around. Yeah. There wouldn't be or not everyone's going to have a great car. So that was kind of um, what he said yeah. in regards and to And I saw those those driverless cars as the, as a status symbol. I mean, they were literally shiny gold cars that were, you know, going down the Hume Highway basically. Mm. And literally they, the Hume. Literally <laughs> the Hume Highway. And, yeah, I kind of saw them as a status symbol. I enjoyed this film. I, I thought it was uh, like a schlocky B-grade um, kind of thriller. The the fight scenes I thought were conducted really well and they build up to those crescendo of violence where there'll be a split second where there's just sort of a level of gore that you don't really expect, which you do get from the Saw films. Yep. Um, I thought Tom Hardy was great. Uh, not Tom Hardy. He um, looks like Logan. Tom Hardy. Sorry, I've got my notes. Hot Tom Hardy. Um, <laughs> someone, someone today described him as poor man's Tom Hardy. <laughs> I thought that makes sense given their budget. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take Logan Marshall Green. Uh, I thought he was really great. I, think I did too. When he, when Stem starts getting more powerful, I think the way he moves his body is really interesting. He starts functioning like a, almost like a video game avatar, the way he moves about walking on sort of straight planes I thought was really interesting. There were two kind of aspects to the film, though, that I thought were really shitty. I mean, I liked I liked that... Just two. Just two. <laughs> two big ones. Uh, I like I the man versus machine thing I did really like because it wasn't just about that. I found that to be about... Um, when we start getting these sort of electronic and gizmos in our bodies, who owns that? And I mm. think that is 
sort of a big question we're grappling at the moment. When we have these Fitbits and when we have these apps on our phones that, that are kind of measuring our bodies, who owns that data? Mm. And I think that is an aspect of the film which I thought was interesting. It does, I think, as you mentioned sort of in your intro, sort of his wife is killed at the start and that is just this trope in these films that's mm. done to death. In order for a male heroic character to have development, he's sort of significant other has to die in a really violent way. And he has to avenge her And death. he has to avenge her. And so, yeah. I mean, it's the woman in the fridge trope, which has been done to death. And there's sort of a lot of sort of really sort of great feminist research on this, where sort of these female characters are so underwritten, they're mm. just there to be violated in order to further the male's character. And she is so vacuous. She's nothing. That character, I, I couldn't have disliked her more. She's so yeah. saccharine. She was so dull. And yeah. there was nothing. And so and, and, and in creating her that way and then killing her so quickly, I actually wasn't invested emotionally yeah. at all in this character or, yeah. you know, he's having to avenge her passing because I didn't care, mm. you know. And, yeah, so they sort of wrote up. I actually think that. I, I think that your reading of it is more flattering than the film um, delivers. I think that it actually think, didn't explore those themes. Like deep. Yep. It didn't go deep enough for me. I think yeah. that is really interesting, though, about where our data goes. I just felt that this... It just didn't dig, dig deep enough to ask questions about the ethics of AI, the future of human consciousness, or the video game-like violence that we're all sort of partaking in and... And where this leads, and I think that there are films and TV series that are doing much more interesting things in this era, in this area, and particularly things like Westworld, yeah. um, is is really fascinating investigation into the ethics of AI and what it means to be human. Um, but you know, I mean, at the same time, Upgrade doesn't doesn't it doesn't pretend to be anything but derivative as mm. well. You know, it's like borrowing from so many. Films. We've seen this film a thousand times. Yeah, yeah, yeah we absolutely. Which have. is really. I think disappointing in a way that they, they could have gone somewhere really interesting, but it's just, it's boring on so many tropes. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned Westworld because Cortez, played by Betty Gabriel, um, who's the cop, she's in season two of Westworld. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, she was underused in this, Yeah, though. she was great. Yeah, she yeah. was great. And she was, yeah, really, really underutilised. I thought the... Um, Eron, which I was like, is that like a reference to Elon Musk? <laughs> I thought that too. That was the first thing so, I thought yeah. So as well. uncreative. I, yeah. thought, I felt like he looked at his iPhone and went, I'll make a movie about Siri and um, and the cloud. Yeah. There's a scene where um, Eron, or let's call it Elon, um, is literally playing with a physical cloud. And I was <laughs> And, and then the wife, um, I forget the wife's name now, anyway, she's like, what's that? And he's like, it's my cloud. Yeah. <laughs> there was so many. My iCloud. There was just so much bad dialogue in it. There was there? one um, I think was meant to be like his really sort of snappy joke for the film where he's like, you thought I was an invalid, but nobody told you I was a ninja. And I was just like, oh. <laughs> I, I laughed oh. at that. I yeah, thought that was great. <laughs> and then Stem was like, I am not a ninja. <laughs> Yes, you I, are. I do think that the one thing that it commented on quite well was how quickly we do get accustomed to technology when we first see it and we're initially resistant. Yeah. Or we're like, oh, my God, I could never have that. I remember the first time someone explained to me what an iPod was, I was like, I'll never be able to afford something like that. Yeah. Now yeah. we all have one. So yeah. I think it was good kind of seeing the character's progression at the start and his 
resistance with technology, but then it had just become day-to-day life, which, you know, happens to mm. us all. Yeah. I, I've also found STEM, um, STEM's abilities a, a little bit unimpressive <laughs> as well. <laughs> like he's not just this like shadow assassin. He also has these really unimpressive abilities too. There's this scene where he tells Gray to rerun footage of the fatal mugging because they've got all these drones that, you know, like CTV, what is it, CTV? CCTV. Yeah, CCTV, CCTV sort of footage. Um, and he tells him to rerun this drone footage and zoom in on clues to help him track down the wife's clues. Killer, I'm like, you could have done that on any computer. You don't yeah. need, a, I don't need AI technology in the back of my <laughs> neck telling me Google Maps. Just, yeah, <laughs> just zoom on Google Maps. Absolutely. Look, I, yeah, it was a little bit, it was a little bit lacking. It was quite a bit disappointing, but it had, you know, yeah, yeah. There's one more point that, um, sort of that I really didn't like, uh, where I mean, we have this Eron character, and the moment we meet him, we know that we can't trust him. So yeah. we know that he's not, I mean, he's helping at this stage, but we know that he's an untrustworthy character. And that's because he's effeminate. There's a kind of a queerness to his character where we have the Logan Marshall Green character mm-hmm. who's our macho hero that is sort of this sort of real kind of machismo about him. Mm. And then we have this like Elon Musk, Mr Burns character mm. with <laughs> this like slicked back blonde his hair. hair. And he's yeah. pasty because he hasn't seen the light of day. Yeah. He's hiding away in his computer tech And that's world. another trope that yep. is just done to death where the, you know, the villainous character that's not a spoiler. Mm. Uh, the the character that's really negative in the film is always the effeminate and mm. kind of yes. queer in some way. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, th- this does. It is a fun film in terms of the violence, and but it just there's a conservative logic to this film, which I just like. We're done. Like we've yep. done this. Absolutely. We've had the women in the fridge trope. We've yep. had the queer villain trope. Like, let's just think a bit more and move on with our script writing. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I agree. I, 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 this is one of those films where I'm like, why was this made? <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm, yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of with you. To me, it's like it's actually just like a Bruce Lee ninja flick yeah. with futuristic tropes. Yeah. And I was like, mm, really? I wanted more of the the hacker, mm, this non-binary mm. hacker oh, character. Oh, yeah, she was great. She, they, they oh, were, they, they were great. Big, they big were pardon. Great. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and and they actually made a comment about yeah. that. You want to know? Like, what, don't ask me what my gender is or something that they yeah. say. I yeah, that, that, I felt that line was put in there though for yeah. a laugh from the audience. Oh. Like the audience when I saw it last night was totally just dude bros and me by yeah. myself. Yeah, <laughs> and um, I felt that that wasn't put in there to be something progressive. I thought it was put in there for a laugh. It, yeah. it, the the line when they were like, what, what did they say? Oh, you're wasting time by putting me in a gender binary. And I was like, who who would say that? <laughs> <laughs> It just—it was just so clunky. Like it went, and I know. I mean, with when you have a non-binary character in film or television, it's—I mean, it, it, you've got to have nuance with the script to work in that kind of revelation and that identification. It, it came out of nowhere, and it yeah. came out of nowhere, yeah. and there was just no kind of care with the script there to sort of have that line delivered. Absolutely, it was just like it just out of nowhere. Uh, well, look, if you are interested in exploring this film and its lack of depth, it's on wide national release. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia.
The next film up for discussion, Disobedience, uh, which is Sebastian Lelio's um, latest offering um, about New York photographer Ronit Krushka, played by Rachel Weisz, um, who flies to London after learning about the death of her estranged father, thrusting her back into the same orthodox Jewish community that shunned her decades earlier for her childhood attraction to Esty, played by Rachel McAdams. Um, although Esty is now married to Ronit's cousin, their reunion reignites a burning passion as the two women explore boundaries of faith and sexuality. From a screenplay by Sebastian Lelio, who brought us the Oscar-winning A Fantastic Woman, and Rebecca Lenkiewicz. The film is based on Naomi Alderman's book, I think of around 2006, I think that was written. Um, the drama pr- premiered at last year's Toronto Film Festival and has just been released in select theatres. And both of, We've all seen A Fantastic Woman, haven't we? I yep. think yes. we all reviewed it yeah. on this, yeah, did, on this show. Yeah. Um, the thing that struck me about this is it's, it's kind of similar themes. He's quite interested in people that are locked out of the grieving process. Yeah, very, very similar theme. That Yeah, what happens when you're shunned from that process of grieving and how do you get back into that community? Yeah. Yeah, although, yeah, interestingly with this film, um, it sort of starts off, you, you kind of think, yeah, we're on this one journey with the Rachel Weisz character, but it very quickly sort of expands into sort of three, potentially four, potentially five stories as these yeah. other characters are drawn into. It. What did you think, Stu? I loved it. Yeah. I thought it was so beautifully done. Um, I think I think you are right. There is he is this real sense of grief and how we process grief, but also I mean thinking about the, the lead character in a Fantastic Woman, and then the Renée character. Um, they're both trying to rebuild their lives in a way and kind of affirm who they are um, in a really kind of triumphant way, sort mm. of in this kind of process of uh, uh, we're the group of people that rebel against them. Um, I really loved the score. Um, I think there's a connection in the score as well. So I spent the day being a bit nerdy and kind of listening to both scores and in both, um, so they're both done by Matthew Herbert um, and they're very similar in their tone, I think. Oh, so a fantastic woman's the same mm, composer. Same, same composer, right. Matthew Herbert. Mm. And there's a real, there's a real kind of almost like a Hitchcockian kind of thriller vibe to the the tone where it sets this the ambience of uh, this film that could be easily over melodramatic, but I think the score really kind of brings it back. And in each uh, in each score, there's this kind of flourish of the flute, um, interestingly, that's very, very, very similar. Um, and so sort of in both sequences, when there's the procession and when she's at in the wig shop, uh, very similar to uh, the title theme of uh, Fantastic Woman. Well, I kind of saw a connection there. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned the wig shop because I kind of thought that Rachel Weisz's hair deserves an acting credit in this film. Um, she has these... <laughs> big luscious locks that sort of frame her face and she sort of twiddles with them in the opening yeah. scene and mm. um, and then when she goes she returns to London to the Jewish community they, they become so such an, a, a, an obvious signifier of her difference and of yep. her um, outsidedness um, because there's a messiness to it there's a messiness to it there's a free freedom to it um, and all the other women in the Jewish community um, they all wear sheetles all these these wigs um, which all married women in, in that community have to wear and so it's this really stark uh, contrast between her freedom and um, uh, Rachel McAdams characters, Esty's um, oppression I suppose is what, how we, we sort of read it mm. um, and there's a beautiful scene where that where her, where Esty's wig is removed and it, it's, in, it's incredibly um, sexual and charged and it's a very simple gesture and I think that's something that Lelio does um, really well where there's these sort of simple 
small human things speak volumes. There's a scene, even uh, there's a scene when Renate um, momentarily sort of looks the wrong way when she's going to cross the street on re- her return to London. And it's this sort of mark of her outsidedness that she's, she now lives in, occupies a foreign space. Um, and there's another moment when she, when she first, um, you know, reconnects with Dovid, her childhood friend who's now married. And she sort of instinctively reaches out to hug him before remembering that it's actually forbidden for a man to touch a woman who isn't his wife. Um, and I liked all those little markers of um, of her of her foreignness now mm. to this community that was once her own. And there's all these lovely scenes of her in a cafe um, devouring these pastries and cakes, which I can only assume is a Jewish patisserie shop. I don't mm. know, um, but it's that kind of yearning um, for, connection. for connection and nostalgia and mm. maybe the sweetness of childhood. I don't know, yeah. but but it's something that I. I, I could understand, you know, of, of when, mm. of when living that expat life and then coming coming back home in that way. I think he does that really well. The things there's a, there's other things though where he just sort of beats you over the head with it. And that Cure um, song that I just played uh, happens in a scene where he, he pops on the radio and all of a sudden that him, uh, Renit and Esty are sort of transformed back or trans, <sighs> transported it's back one of my to their. Bits. Is that, that, was that was your so favorite bit? Good. Did you I love like that? I thought that was so schlocky. I, I, I loved it. I'll, t- I'll tell you why. <laughs> Why I especially love that yeah. scene is because <clears throat> Rachel McAdams's face almost like totally transformed in it. Mm. And we're aware of what's going to happen with their relationship. You know, that's not kept a secret, but it's very slow paced and there's this really slow sort of unravelling of it. And it was at that point where, you know, her face kind of almost contorted a bit that we're going, okay, here we go. This is when things are changing. And I really appreciated how, you know, they did do that really slow unravelling of the characters. I think it was really tender in lots of ways, this movie, particularly with the husband's character as well. And I think of... um. It could have been easy to say that, you know, they've been isolated from this community and that would have been an easy way out. But I feel that at the, without giving anything away, the main obstacles in this movie were their characters themselves and not their community. Mm-hmm. So I think that was, yeah, really beautiful, um, beautifully explored in this film. Do you remember earlier in the year we, we watched the film Menasha? Yes. Do, I felt like I've you, learnt a lot about the Jewish me community too. this year. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know films. what's happening yeah. in the yeah. collective consciousness, but um, there's a lot more of these films being mm-hmm. made about this, these sort of closed communities, which I'm finding really revelatory. There's quite a few uh, uh, films that explore um, sort of gay men and the Jewish community. Uh, Call Me By Your Name does it. Uh, Eyes Wide Open, Yossi and Jagger, The Bubble, Torch Song Trilogy. There was a recent one two, three years ago called Out in the Dark, which explores a relationship between um, an Israeli character and a Palestinian character and kind of the border, literal border between them. Um, Yeah, I really love uh, how Lelio kind of explores their faces in the film because the dialogue is really sparse and deliberately vague and... I mean, going into the film, you know what's going to happen. I mean, the poster gives it away that you know there's going to be this connection between Esther and and Ronit. But I think the way it develops, I think, is so interesting. And there's that moment when Esther just sort of inadvertently can't bobbing her head to the Cure song. Yeah, right. I really loved. I loved it too. He has a really um, great way of exploring faces in his films. Like in A Fantastic Woman, there was so much focus on her face yeah. and it being distorted in that particular film, whereas yeah. here it was just sort of lingering shots on their faces quite yeah. a lot. Mm, that's true. Yeah, I, I know. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I actually just found that scene with the, <laughs> with the song just... T- 
too, he just laid it on too thick because the lyrics to that song, I wrote them down. It's whenever I'm alone with you, you make me feel like I am home again. However far away, I will always love you. I just thought it was just so See, schmaltzy. I, was I like, loved it. it was <laughs> 90s goth. The but cure and was I, good. But I was also like, how did he just happen to turn on the radio and it happened to be that song from their youth? I don't know. I just, that was the only thing that, that was my only sort of um, criticism, really. I actually really loved the film. I think yeah, I thought yeah. it was an incredible film. Yeah. The the sex scene is Oof. makes you blush. Oh um, my yeah. I didn't I was talking to a friend about it today going, I don't know if I want to talk about the sex scene on air. But they go there. Like they absolutely go there. I they actually, do that. Yeah. I loved it. It's this and BPM are my favourite sex well, scenes. See, I love, yeah. You and I love the sex scenes in BPM. Great queer sex scenes. Great queer, yeah. great yeah. queer sex scenes, rather. There's another. Yeah. One. I actually like them in the Cake Maker too. You didn't like them so much, Stu, but I. But but, but I really enjoyed. Them. <laughs> <laughs> but this, I actually, this made me blush. It actually made me dry reach at one point. Really? Yeah, because and I feel bad saying no. There was just too much bodily fluids. Is it the spit? Yeah, yeah. I just that was just, it was just a bit of yeah. I couldn't deal with the spit. Um, <laughs> I would have, there was one really nerdy connection that I... Uh, so Naomi Oldman, who wrote the novel, uh, she also writes for the this running app called Zombies Run, interestingly. Yeah, right. Um, so it's an app that you... Like, there's sort of... It's almost like a podcast where there's, like, there's episodes and it's like a zombie apocalypse. Um, and there's there's a lesbian love story in that as well. Um and so she writes for that. And it's because whenever you, I open the app, it's like, you know, created by Nomi Alderman. And then when her name was in the credits, it's like, I know her. <laughs> she Zombie writes the woman. zombies out. <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Um, well, yeah, if you're interested in, in checking out Disobedience, unlimited release at any good independent cinema. Three triple R. Welcome back. You're on Triple R. Plato's Cave is the program. Uh, our final film for tonight is called Sunday's Illness. Um, set in Spain, the film centres around Chiara, a 43-year-old woman whose mother, Annabelle, abandoned her when she was barely eight years old. 35 years later, Chiara tracks her estranged mother down and demands her mother spend 10 days with her. A, tr- a contract is drawn up. Annabelle sees the trip as a chance to get her daughter back, but what she doesn't know is that Chiara has a hidden purpose and that she'll fa- have to face the most important decision of her life. From Spanish writer-director Ramon Salazar, the film stars Barbara Lenny, excuse me, and Susie Sanchez as mother and daughter. Um, Sunday's Illness had its world premiere at the Berlin Film Festival and has just been released internationally on Netflix following its theatrical release in Spain. Spain. Um, Netflix initially, <coughs> sorry, Netflix initially became involved in the project at script stage um, and it's now taken on the world rights and another one of those straight to Netflix kind of situations, mm. sort of, do you think? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But a bit different to something like Okja or yeah. something they've actually invested in the whole way. They just yeah. sort of, yeah, picked it up at this sort of stage and, you know, at least it's getting a good release, I'd it say. Is. Yeah. yeah, international yeah. release. Yeah. yeah. What did you think, Stu? I loved it. Yeah. I thought this was incredible. Mm. I am a little sad that it's on Netflix though because mm. this is such a beautifully shot film. Yeah. yeah, it deserves a big screen. I mean this it's so ethereal. It's such like it's this in this dreamlike state the entire time and I just want this on the big screen. Uh, yeah, I thought it was really, really incredible. It's such an elegant film. Mm-hmm. Uh, Annabelle uh, Susie Sanchez uh, she's just 
she, she was amazing. Wow, I, <laughs> I loved her. She's this like Anna Wintour like figure. Mm, that one shot that's a where good she was. Um, this is the mother we're talking about. Mother. She's quite yeah. steely and She's elegant, very, wealthy. very yeah. wealthy. So that's a big part of her character where. Mm. Uh, it's very, very well-to-do and the first shot we see of her is just this long shot of her walking down the hallway. Um, you can only hear the clicking of the heels and then she trips. Yeah. Which is just such a, such interesting little kind of insight to her character where she, when we first see her, she's she's all that. but there's, She's all put together. But there's a little bit of her that's And like her fragile. appearance yeah. like slowly unravels. Is that one of my favourite parts in this movie? I absolutely love it too. And Lisa, you suggested this. Um which I'm very grateful for because I wouldn't, it would have got lost for me. I wouldn't yeah. have been aware of it and I absolutely loved it. But there was that one shot early on where she's staying, you know, with her daughter of her sitting there in this really elegant black gown and she, it's just so beautiful. I loved it. Mm. And then they're trying to wash the dog and it yeah. becomes funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted to talk for a moment about the, the music. So those two tracks that I've played tonight, um, Dream a Little Dream, <clears throat> both of the, the actresses who it's just stellar performances. The script is really pared back, um, but it allows them so much space to move within mm. it. Um, and, and they both get their own little dance routines within this. And um, for the older woman, for the for the mother character, um, Annabelle, she has this, she sort of drifts to the melodies of Dream a Little Dream in this empty room. And she's sort of like moving in the past, you know, in nostalgia. But, but there's a real kind of thrust to it. Mm. That's true. That's yeah. true it's in, not, the, it's in not, her movement. It's just not swaying. It's almost, I almost likened it to the Sharpies before. You did, yeah. <laughs> it's like her actually, arms aren't moving. Yeah, yeah her arms aren't mm. moving, but it's just, there's a real thrust to it. Yeah, she actually her hips are thrust. Yeah. Thrust forward. Just, it's quite sexual. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I loved that. And then I loved the contrast of that with Kiara, who, who gets drunk and angry at a party and unleashes just this, this rage on the dance floor as that 99 um, Luftballons plays in the background. And I thought just beautiful contrasting mm. moments like that. There's so much um, synchronicity with the two women and this is played out in some photographs as well um, yeah. where, the, where the daughter has um, essentially photoshopped herself as a grown woman into a photo with her mother. I thought that was really powerful. Yeah. You know, yeah. she was trying to fill in, trying to draw some sort of connection to the mother that she, she lost and, um, and never had any real connection to. Yeah, the the distance between the mother and daughter in this film was really powerful and similar to Disobedience where they really kind of took their time to see where that was going to go. It wasn't that they've gone away and suddenly they have this mother and daughter bond. They don't. Mm. It's, you know, you're even there qu- questioning how could a mother just leave an eight-year-old daughter? You know, what kind of person is this? But she's also very likeable character, Annabelle, the mother. Um She's rich, she is dressed sort of in a really snooty way. All these things that we're kind of told that we shouldn't like in a film, we should be more drawn towards the, I guess, more laid-back daughter. But it it was the opposite to me. I was just totally in love with the character of Annabelle, the mother, Um, whereas the daughter, she was great too. It was like she was a spoiled teenager a lot Mm. of the time. But you could see she had these equal amounts of love and hatred towards her mother. Of course, you know, her mother has abandoned her. There's going to be this upset. But she also really admired her and the way that 
they treated each other up until I guess the point where she does go out and dance to 99 Red Balloons was really interesting the way that they kept each other at a distance. Mm. There, there's something of, a, of the horror genre about this oh, film. so much. It's yeah. so uneasy. It's so uneasy. You don't the know score. what's going to happen. Yep. And you don't know what their motivate, what sort of Kiara's no. motivation is mm. for having this retreat in the middle of nowhere. Yes. And it's so isolated that you watching it, you you think there's going to be a flip. And it does go in really unexpected directions. And, yeah, there's this constant sense of unease because it's never spoken. That one particular scene with the dog where it's like, what is going to happen? How was I was so completely tense oh, and uneasy. Yeah. And going, what is she doing? How is this going to play out? And then it takes something that was completely unexpected. But it goes back mm. to that kind of teenager thing with Chiara, how she sort of lies and tells half-truths and all this sort of thing to get her mother's attention. Yeah, mm. and not sort of not knowing what the motiva- the real motivation yeah. is. Yeah. They're very peculiar yeah. behaviours. And slowly this Annabelle character who was so put together in an incredible way, slowly gets revealed and we learn more of her backstory and the more we learn about her... It strips more, away the artifice, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, the more yeah. her costumes become more rural and she actually kind of looks like she belongs in that kind of French kind of countryside She's town. She's interesting though because there's not any resistance to her going into that situation either because you see her move in and you think, okay, she's not going to want to tend to a fire. I should say that it's set sort of in, I think it was filmed in rural Berlin. Was it? I yes. thought it was Spain. No, it's. <laughs> I, th- I thought it was near the border of... Spain and France. France. Well, I could be wrong. I, oh, we could all be I wrong. Be. I haven't done my research. Anyway. Really. Um, <laughs> Europe. <laughs> Europe. It was in Europe. And I think, I, I think the setting was really as important to that film as like Northern Italy and Call Me By Your Name. Like it yeah. really sort of enhanced it. But, um, yeah, there was no resistance with Annabelle the mother to kind of do these rural things like mm. tend to fire and all that kind of thing, which I thought that she would have. She was a really complex and interesting character. Yeah, she was. And like you said, the landscape was remarkable. There's this incredible Beautiful. tree or something that features in the film, yeah. which I found... Um, breathtaking, disturbing. Mm. It, it was so eerie and so well used. And like you said, Stuart, it belongs on a big screen. There are yep. these yeah. remarkable scenes, um, yeah, within this sort of little town. A few people have likened the f- some Someone likened the film to Hereditary. I saw, I saw that. that. Yeah. Did you? Yes. yes. I, I hereditary I without the horror. I haven't I, I, seen I Hereditary, no, so I, I, I wouldn't know. I, yeah. I didn't get the connection. I didn't get the connection. Okay, no, I, I just wanted to ask you two about it because you've both seen Hereditary yeah. and I've not. And no. I was like, oh, that's weird. I was that's like, a bit lazy. Yeah. 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 Right. Okay. Mother and child stories, but yeah, no, I don't. No. No. But I actually think it is very similar to Call Me By Your Name, I think. Yeah, I I thought that the whole. Because there are a lot of long shots, really slow long shots of them walking through these woods. Uh, and it's just about how they move about in this space. And it's, I mean, it is ethereal. That's the word I keep on coming mm, back mm. to. It's its like a dream, this yeah, world. it absolutely is. Um, well, I think I should wrap it up there because time is getting away from us. Um, you have been listening to Plato's Cave with myself, Lisa Kovacevic, Sally Christie, uh, Stuart Richards. Um, we discussed, um, help me out, guys, what did we discuss tonight? We discussed um, disobedience. Um, <laughs> upgrade. Upgrade, which is on wide wide release. Disobedience on limited release. Um, and Sunday's, Sunday's illness. illness. If you have access to a Netflix account, anyone's will do, um, you can watch that right now. And I'd highly recommend so good. that you do. Yeah, watch it. We'll be back next week. Do you guys know what's being discussed next yes. week? Yes, Foxtrot, uh, Ideal Home, starring Steve Coogan, and The Man Who Knew Too Much, oh, a retrospective. Hitchcock. Hitchcock. Oh, Hitchcock. I don't want to miss-
miss out on the Hitchcock one. Oh, well, I'll see yeah. you guys in two weeks. Enjoy the Hitchcock show. <laughs> this has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.